again, you know, inshallah, the same next year. And before we get started this evening, um, I've been asked to remind the audience that this lecture is being taped. Uh, the tape will be, or the I don't know what you guys call it anymore. I'm so old, I would have said we're filming it. But um, the <laughs> anyway, it will be uh, archived at the Michigan State University Libraries to serve as a resource both for the Michigan State community and also for um, kind of the, the wider world. So we're asking that you please um, silence your phones and any other electronic devices. Um, and if you have to get up during the lecture to please try to do so with as little disruption as possible. Um, we're gonna be taking, a f uh, Professor Gandhi will give his lecture, then we'll take a five minute or so break so that the tech guys can do their uh, thing and then um, we'll have uh, a Q&A session and we invite all of you to participate in that. Now, um, you know, I have to say that when Dean Garnett and Professor Gandhi were planning this series uh, a year ago, I guess they, you know, at first I thought, wow, they were geniuses. Like, look at the topic, and um, here we are in the middle of what, to me, is the bitterest election campaign of my lifetime. Um, and, you know, it's really remarkable that they were so prescient as to come up with this uh, topic. Uh, of course, they couldn't have known that at the time. Um, I know that a lot of you have uh, been sort of been ripped asunder by uh, the campaign. Some of you are probably ebullient and others um, may be much more despondent or even fearful. So my training is as a comparativist. So, uh, and one of the things that we find helpful is the ability to uh, turn to other cases for instruction and sometimes inspiration when our own context may be um, more overwrought than we can really bear to reflect on at the moment. So in that sense, what better time for us to reflect on a moment in another democracy's history when uh, division was the order of the day, a moment that was marked by displacement and destruction and uh, a lot of violence and death. And yet in the midst of all this sort of distrust and, and death, um, Gandhi and his followers advocated for, and I would say lived in a uh, kind of politics um, that was an alternative right, and was not only a way to try to dissipate the violence, but also a way to try to uh, overcome divisions and bring people together. So in that spirit, I think we're really lucky to have Professor Rajmohan Gandhi uh, with us. I think he um, has, has been living the legacy of his grandfather's dedication to Ahimsa uh, and peace building, both through, his work as, both through his work as a journalist, as a scholar, um, his teaching, and of course his uh, activism and political work. Uh, Professor Gandhi has worked tirelessly through civil society for dialogue and reconciliation between divided communities throughout the world, including between Hindus and Muslims in South Asia. So it's a great honor for me to introduce Professor Rajmohan Gandhi, who's a person I think embodies James Madison College dual commitments to scholarly analysis and public activism. So please give him a warm welcome. Thanks so much.
thank you, Professor Linda Rashopi, for that very generous uh, introduction, and I thank everyone for uh, coming here. Appreciate that. Um, so India's uh, Hindu-Muslim question uh, began with Islam's arrival there centuries ago. From the 12th century to the 19th, Muslim monarchs sat on Delhi's throne, and from there ruled much or most of India. By about the 15th century, Muslims constituted a majority in the northwest and the east of the subcontinent, uh, in Punjab, Sindh, Balochistan, Kashmir, and the northwestern front frontier, and also in Bengal in the east. However, Hindus remained a majority in the core area of India's Muslim kingdoms, the large region all around Delhi, and in India as a whole. When the British left in 1947, Muslims constituted around 25% of the subcontinent's population. Now, at the grassroots, coexistence and interdependence became the norm, especially among the lower classes, who of course formed the majority. Coexistence and frequent participation in each other's festivals, however, did not lead to the creation of a single community. That's the background. Uh, the 1857 revolt against British rule was fully crushed by 1859. While the empire absorbed the lessons of that revolt, Indians on the whole did not. One major lesson was that Muslim-Hindu partnership had supplied energy to the revolt. From the late 1850s, an astute empire carried forward its strategy of keeping Muslims, Hindus, and Sikhs focused on their religious identity and divided from one another. This strategy was carefully implemented in the empire's post-revolt Indian armies. Charles Wood, Secretary of State in London, wrote to Viceroy Canning in India in 1861, if one regiment mutinies, the next regiment should be so alien to it that it would be ready to fire into it. The strategy was also implemented politically. A solidly Muslim Eastern Bengal province created in 1905 by partitioning the large Bengal presidency disappeared in 1911, when, following large-scale agitation, the presidency was reunited. This pleased many Bengali Hindus and also the Indian National Congress, which had been formed in 1885. In the meantime, in 1909, the empire conceded a demand voiced by a delegation of prominent Muslims for a quota of Muslim seats in any councils and an exclusive electorate for those seats, ensuring that only Muslims voted in elections for those seats. When Viceroy Minto assured this delegation of the empire's commitment, an unnamed British official congratulated him right away with these lines. I must send your excellency a line to say that a very, very big thing hap has happened today, a work of statesmanship that will affect India and Indian history for many a long year. It is nothing less than the pulling back of 62 millions of people, that was India's Muslim population at the time, from joining the ranks of the seditious opposition, the Indian National Congress. The year 1909 also saw the formation in Dhaka, now in Bangladesh, of the All India Muslim League. One brilliant Muslim did not support a separate Muslim electorate at this point and did not join the Muslim League, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. His parents, like the parents of Gandhi, belonged to Gujarat's Katiawad region. Converted to Islam only a generation or two before Jinnah was born, the family had joined Shia Islam's Ismaili or Koja sect led by the Aga Khan. Like Gandhi, who was older by seven years, young Jinnah studied law in London. Like Gandhi, he seemed keen on Muslim-Hindu understanding. 
1913, after wars in the Balkans threatened Turkey, seen then as the world's principal Muslim power, Jinnah, already in the Congress and aspiring to be a bridge, joined the Muslim League as well. The year 1909, when the Muslim League was founded and a separate Muslim electorate created, was also when Gandhi wrote his well-known text, Hind Swaraj, on a ship taking him from England back to South Africa. Although Gandhi would not return to India until 1915, this significant text was about India, not about Indians in South Africa. Here is what Gandhi wrote about the, Indi about the Hindu-Muslim question in Hind Swaraj in 1909. If the Hindus believe that India should be peopled only by Hindus, they are living in dreamland. The Hindus, the Muslims, the Parsis, the Christians who have made India their country are fellow countrymen, and they will have to live in unity if only for their own interest. He continues, in no part of the world are one nationality and one religion synonymous terms, nor has it ever been so in India. Continues, is the God of the Muslim different from the God of the Hindu? There are deadly proverbs as between the followers of Shiva and those of Vishnu, yet nobody suggests that these two do not belong to the same nation. Those who do not wish to misunderstand things may read up the Quran, and they will find therein hundreds of passages acceptable to the Hindus. And the Bhagavad Gita contains passages to which not a Muslim can take exception. Am I to dislike a Muslim because there are passages in the Quran I do not understand or like? End of quotation. Until his death four decades later, these would remain Gandhi's steadfast views. Articulated 107 years ago, these thoughts seem directly relevant to our world today. In 1915, Gandhi returned to India. At the end of 1916, he supported a historic Congress Muslim League pact signed in Lucknow, under which the two bodies agreed to work jointly for Indian self-government, with the Congress giving up its opposition to a separate Muslim electorate. Both parties also agreed to, to weightage for minorities, enabling Hindus in Muslim-majority provinces and Muslims in Hindu-majority provinces to have a higher than proportional share in any councils. This pact had three principal architects, Punas Balgangadar Tilak, who was staunch for the Hindu interest, Annie Besant, who would preside over the Congress in 1917, she was an Irish woman, and Jinnah, a rising star in both the Congress and the League. Under this pact, the two communities had together asked the empire for the same thing. However, Muslims in Punjab, undivided at the time, and in United Bengal, felt cheated by the pact, for in these two large Muslim-majority provinces, weightage was likely to give non-Muslims a majority in the council. Unlike the big Bombay and Madras presidencies, unlike the populous province of UP, where Muslims made up a small minority, or the Northwest frontier, where non-Muslims comprised a tiny minority, Hindus and Sikhs in Punjab and Hindus in Bengal were large minorities, close to 40%. Electoral weightage for them could deny Punjab and Bengal a Muslim chief. This difficulty was overlooked during the years between 1919 and 1922, when the Gandhi-led non-cooperation movement brought together Hindus and Muslims and also the Congress and the League. Jinnah was pushed off stage at this time, while the Ali brothers, Shaukat and Muhammad, and Maulana Abul Kalam Azad became India's most prominent Muslim figures, standing alongside Gandhi. 
When the non-cooperation movement seemed to peter out in the mid-1920s, Jinnah returned to center stage and came up with another proposal for a Congress-League pact. Let the League accept joint electorates, he said, and let the Congress agree to the removal of weightage in Punjab and Bengal. Jinnah also asked that for enhancing their sense of security, Muslims should receive a one-third share in any future Central Assembly, higher than their one-fourth ratio in the population. Now, from an all-India perspective, Jinnah's bold package was reasonable, even attractive. But Punjab's Hindus and Sikhs, and Bengal's Hindus, better off than Muslims of their provinces in the economy and in the professions, refused to touch it. They thought it was their toil, not anyone's favors, that had earned them their superior economic and social situation. As for political weightage, it was part of a contract. Meeting in Calcutta at the end of 1928, the Congress and other groups yielded to these views and rejected Jinnah's proposal while agreeing to a 27% share for Muslims in a central legislature. Now, Gandhi personally was willing to accept Jinnah's terms, but unable to bring round the Congress leaders of Bengal and Punjab. Called a miracle worker between 1919 and 1922, he could not change ground realities in 1928. The Calcutta outcome was shattering for Jinnah and for others hoping for a political settlement of the Hindu-Muslim question. Soon thereafter, Jinnah removed himself to London to practice law there. From London, Jinnah watched the Salt March and connected campaigns that shook India from 1930 to 1933, the empire's tough reaction thereafter, and the response of the Congress. In 1934, he returned to in India, about to try out provincial autonomy, with the empire hoping that office in provincial governments would soften Indian politicians, and the Congress hoping that provincial responsibility would lead one day to national power. After provincial elections held in February 1937, the Congress formed ministries in eight provinces, and with allies also in Bombay, Assam, and the Muslim-majority province of the Northwest Frontier, where Dr. Khan Sahib, older brother of Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, whose Khudai Khidmatgars had surprised the empire in 1930, headed the Congress-led alliance. Except in this frontier province, however, the Congress, is, the Congress received only a small share of the Muslim vote. Led by Jinnah, who was now elected as the League's permanent president, the Muslim League, contesting for Muslim seats under the separate electorate, performed well in Hindu-majority provinces, where it vowed to protect threatened Muslim interests, but not so well in Muslim-majority Punjab, Bengal, Sindh, and the Northwest Frontier, where Muslims did not see Hindus as a danger. In mostly agricultural Punjab, where both the Congress and the Muslim League remained essentially urban parties, the government elected under a restricted franchise was formed by the pro-empire and pro-feudal unionist party, made up of Muslim, Sikh, and Hindu landlords, but also supported by many farmers. In Bengal, the League became part of a coalition ministry headed by the peasants' parties, Fazlul Haq. Leading the Congress campaign early in 1937, Jawaharlal Nehru asked Indians to choose between the Congress and the British. Jinnah replied, I refuse to line up. There is a third party, the Muslims. We're not going to be dictated to by anybody, unquote. 
the empire-colony confrontation thus morphed from 1937 into a trickier, three-sided clash involving the empire, the Congress, and the League, although there were other forces too, like the Unionist Party in Punjab. Whereas the ideologically driven Jawaharlal Nehru would not touch the feudal unionists, Gandhi was willing to explore common ground with this regional party, which espoused a Muslim-Sikh-Hindu partnership, as was, the, as was the Congress leader in the South, the Madras Premier Rajagopalachari. However, in 1941, a vigilant viceroy and his officers in Lahore prevented Rajagopalachari's overtures from reaching the Unionist Premier of Punjab, Sikandar Hayat Khan. From 1937 to 1939, the Congress, guided by Gandhi, played its cards skillfully, its ministries pleasing the public with popular measures and impressing the empire with its discipline. What suddenly st strengthened Jinnah's hand was Hitler's attack on Poland in September 1939, which started World War II in Europe. Fought by the Allies in democracy's name, the war made the Indian people keener than ever for freedom while making the empire keener than before to delay freedom of India. As soon as war was declared, the British Parliament empowered the Viceroy in India, Lord Linlithgow, to override or take over India's provincial governments. Gandhi's instincts told him that the Congress should show sympathy for Britain and the Allies, but the national mood was against any expression of support without a clear assurance of freedom after the war an assurance the empire refused to give. For formulating a united Indian response to the war, Gandhi invited Jinnah to join a discussion along with Congress leaders. On, the, on September 9, he wrote in his journal Harijan, in the midst of this catastrophe without parallel, congressmen and all other responsible Indians, individually and collectively, have to decide what part India is to play in this terrible drama." Unquote. Declining Gandhi's invitation, Jinnah accepted the invitation of the Viceroy, for Linlithgow too was wooing him. Two years earlier, in 1937, Churchill had asked Linlithgow to build India's Muslims, quote, as a counter-check on Congress, unquote. In October 1939, the Viceroy wrote to the King, George VI, in England, that he was working on Jinnah on India's Rajas and on other opponents of the Congress. It was, said the Viceroy in that letter, quote, a heavy and trying task, but well worth the trouble, unquote. It has been decided, the Viceroy added in that letter to the King, that the Congress would not be given what they're asking for, namely an understanding that India will receive political independence at the end of the war. Unwilling to serve as docile agents of a hardening empire, all Congress provincial ministries resigned in December 1939. Jinnah called the resignation deliverance for Muslims. In March 1940, Jinnah would say, up to the time of the declaration of war, the Viceroy never thought of an important party, the Viceroy never thought of me, unquote. Whether or not he knew it, Hitler had stopped India's march to independence and produced an understanding between the empire and the Muslim League. This, under this understanding quickly produced a far-reaching outcome. At the end of 1939, Viceroy Linlithgow suggested to Jinnah that the logical implication of his stand was a separate Muslim state, at which 
as the Viceroy noted in his journal, Jinnah blushed. The Viceroy also asked Zafrullah Khan, a member of his executive council, to draft a note advising the Muslim League to demand a separate nation. This idea was not entirely novel. In 1930, the poet Iqbal had spoken of an autonomous Muslim entity in northwestern India. In 1933, a Punjabi student at Cambridge University, England, Chaudhry Rahmat Ali, had spoken of a future state which he called Pakistan <coughs> to comprise Punjab, Sindh, Kashmir, Balochistan, and the frontier province. By January 1940, Jinnah was saying publicly that Hindus and Muslims were two different nations. And on the 23rd of March, separation was formally called for at a Muslim League session in Lahore. From the soil of Punjab, the Muslim League demanded, quote, separate and sovereign Muslim states comprising geographically contiguous units in which the Muslims are numerically in a majority as in the, in the northwestern and eastern zones of India. The Bengal Premier, Fazlul Haq of the Peasants Party, heading a coalition ministry that included the Muslim League, moved the historic resolution, yet it was the Karachi-born Gujarati, Jinnah, who was Lahore's central figure. He was also a changed man, arousing passion, unlike the reasoning Jinnah of the 1920s. The Times of London reported that prolonged cheering almost drowned Jinnah's remark that he would give his life to achieve a Muslim state. Several equations, too, had suddenly changed in Jinnah's favor. The, the, the League's equation with the Empire and the Congress, the League's equation with other bodies interested in Muslim support, including Punjab's Unionist Party and Bengal's Peasants Party, and Jinnah's equation with other Muslim leaders in India. Now the League leader could hope to avenge snubs he had received in 1937 from the Unionists in Punjab, the Peasants' Party in Bengal, and the Khudai Khidmatgars of the frontier. And avenge also an earlier upstaging in 1922-1922, 1920-1922, by the Ali brothers and Azad. And most pleasing of all, perhaps, avenge the sidelining in 1919-20 caused by Gandhi's emergence on the national stage. The Lahore Resolution of 1940 did not ask for a homeland for India's Muslims, nor for removing all of the subcontinent's Muslims to one or two regions. It sought the separation from India of Muslim-majority areas. The boundaries of this Muslim-majority state were not specified in the Lahore Resolution, and there was also a clear suggestion, later dismissed as a typing error, that more than one Muslim state was being demanded. Pointing out that the resolution which was passed to sustained applause did not describe the boundaries of the new state, a delegate at Lahore said that this imprecise wording would encourage the partitioning of Punjab and Bengal, both of which contained large areas where non-Muslims comprised a majority. Liaquat Ali Khan, the Muslim League's general secretary, who belonged to Karnal in eastern Punjab, defended vagueness, saying, quote, if we say Punjab, that would mean that the boundary of our state would be Gurgaon, whereas we want to include in our proposed dominion Delhi and Aligarh, which are centers of our culture. Rest assured, Liaquat Ali continued, that we will not give away any part of Punjab. Ten days earlier, at Ramgarh in Bihar, where the Congress was meeting under Abul Kalam Azad's presidency, 
the Maulana drew a wholly different picture of the Hindu-Muslim relationship. This is what he said. It was India's historic destiny that many human races and cultures and religions should flow to her, and that many a caravan should find rest there. One of the last of these caravans was that of the followers of Islam. This came here and settled here for good. Everything, he went on, bears the stamp of our joint endeavor. Our languages were different, but we grew to use a common language. Our manners and customs were different, but they produced a new synthesis. No fantasy or artificial scheming to separate and divide can break this unity. To these words, Jinnah's counter, given in Lahore, was that Hindus and Muslims could never evolve a common nationality and that to yoke together two such nations under a single state would destroy any fabric of government. The Pakistan call was a frontal assault on Gandhi's vision. In written comments, Gandhi contested the doctrine behind it. This is what he said. The two nations theory is an untruth. Why is India not one nation? Was it not one during, say, the Mughal period? Is India composed of two nations? If it is, why only two are not Christians a third, Parsis a fourth, and so on? Are the Muslims of China a nation separate from the other Chinese? Are the Muslims of England a different nation from the other English? How are the Muslims of Punjab different from the Hindus and the Sikhs? Are they not all Punjabis, drinking the same water, breathing the same air, deriving sustenance from the same soil? In practical terms, said Gandhi, it was, quote, worse than anarchy to partition a poor country like India, whose every corner was populated by Hindus and Muslims living side by side. Yet Gandhi conceded that separation was possible. He said, if the vast majority of Indian Muslims feel that they are not one nation with their Hindu and other brethren, who will be able to resist them? He added, Pakistan cannot be worse than foreign domination. I have lived under the latter, though not willingly. If God so desires it, I may have to become a helpless witness to the undoing of my dream. Gandhi also seemed to concede the principle of self-determination, saying, the Muslims must have the same right of self-determination that the rest of India has. We are at present a joint family. Any member may claim a division. Five months later, however, in Bombay, Gandhi made emotional remarks which appeared to contradict what he had said in April and May of 1940. I do not say this as a Hindu, wrote Gandhi, or said Gandhi, he was speaking at a public meeting. I say this as a representative of Hindus, Muslims, Parsis, and all. I would say to my Muslim brethren, cut me to pieces first and then divide India. You are trying to do something which was not attempted even during the Mughal rule of 200 years. We shall not allow you to do it." Unquote. In August 1940, with Churchill installed as Prime Minister, the empire declared from London that it could not assure Indian independence after the war. It also promised never to allow India's minorities to be, quote, coerced into submission, unquote, to a majority government. With these declarations, the Muslim League, India's princes, and other minority groups were given a veto over India's political future. Four years later, in the summer of 1944, when several Congress leaders, including President Azad, Nehru, and Patel were still in prison, Gandhi, who had been released after 21 months in detention, 
explored a settlement with Jinnah. After an exchange of letters, the two Gujaratis talked 14 times in Bombay, 14 times between 9 September 1944 and 27 September 1944. For each meeting, Gandhi walked to Jinnah's house on Mount Pleasant Road, Malabar Hill. It was a short walk, for Gandhi too was staying on Mount Pleasant Road in the house of his friends, the Birlas. Both Gandhi and Jinnah were unwell, with Amoeba bothering Gandhi, who was close to his 75th birthday, and a 67-year-old Jinnah privately diagnosed with a more serious illness, quote, unresolved pneumonia in the base of his lungs, unquote, as was revealed much later. Politically, Jinnah was stronger than he had ever been. In 1944, the League claimed two million members. 17 years earlier, its membership had been less than 1,400. Journalists crowded Jinnah's lawns and those of Birla House. Indians saw pictures of the two leaders smiling and meeting repeatedly. Gandhi sent to Jinnah his nature cure doctor. And on Eid Day, which fell during the talks, Gandhi sent to Jinnah a supply of wheat crackers. Gandhi also made a concrete offer. If the Muslim League joined the Congress in asking for a national government, he said he would get the Congress to accept post-independence plebiscites for separation in the subcontinent's Muslim-majority areas. Gandhi went on to say, if the votes favored separation, India and Pakistan should create bonds of alliance. But the talks failed. Objecting that Gandhi's Pakistan was not large enough, for it excluded the Muslim minority areas of Punjab and Bengal, nor given the suggested bonds of alliance sovereign enough, Jinnah rejected the offer. He also asked Gandhi to agree that Muslims and Hindus were two separate nations. Also, Gandhi should agree that voting in any plebiscites should be restricted to Muslims, and that separation should precede, not follow, the end of British rule. These were propositions unacceptable to Gandhi. Quote, let us call in a third party or parties to guide or even arbitrate between us, unquote, Gandhi suggested on the 22nd of September. Jinnah did not agree, and he also turned down Gandhi's wish to present his scheme to the executive committee of the Muslim League. Azad, who was in prison, thought that the talks had only increased Jinnah's prestige. Yet the talks had also exposed the problematic nature of the League leaders' demands. For in his conversations with Gandhi, Jinnah had insisted that Pakistan would include West Bengal and East Punjab. But if Hindu-majority areas could belong to Pakistan, why shouldn't Muslim-majority areas remain in India? And if non-Muslims in Muslim-majority areas were not entitled to vote, what rights could Muslims demand in Hindu-majority areas? From these unsuccessful talks in September 44, Gandhi took away an intriguing question about Jinnah. Born in Karachi, but owning property in Bombay, Delhi, and Simla. Enjoying a large legal practice in Bombay and Delhi. Concerned with Muslims in Muslim-majority areas, but also with Muslims in Hindu-majority areas. How deeply did this Jinnah desire a separated Pakistan, even though he was demanding it? On 15th March 1946, Churchill's successor as Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, told the House of Commons that Britain had decided to leave India. Later in the month, three ministers of the British cabinet, Secretary for India, Patrick Lawrence, 
India expert Stafford Cripps, and A.V. Alexander, a trade union leader who had become first lord of the admiralty, arrived in India to try to resolve the Pakistan demand and also to convert the Viceroy's Executive Council into an interim national government. Viceroy Wavell joined as the fourth member of Britain's negotiating team, which conferred with Indian politicians during all of April and May and most of June in New Delhi and Simla. Never before had three cabinet ministers from Britain spent three summer months together in India. The main discussion was in a scheme thought up by Cripps of a three-tiered India, where provinces would form the bottom tier, two groups of provinces, one in the northwest and second in the east, would form the middle tier, and the union would be the top tier. If they agreed to combine the two groups in the middle, inclusive of all of Punjab, Sindh, Balochistan, the frontier province, all of Bengal, and Assam, would constitute large Pakistan, although the cabinet mission, as it was called, did not use that phrase. Jinnah said he could accept the scheme if the union was nominal and the groups could later secede from the union. The Congress said it would accept the scheme if the union was real and if provinces like the Northwest Frontier, where a Congress ministry had again been elected earlier in the year, and Assam, where Muslims constituted a minority, could stay out of the groups to begin with. The cabinet decision did not speak plain, the cabinet mission did not speak plainly. It did not tell the Congress and the League that a real union and a large Pakistan space went together. If the Congress wanted League support for an undivided India, it had to accommodate a large Pakistan area. If the League wanted Congress backing for a large Pakistan area, the latter would have to exist within an Indian union. Instead, the mission spoke in two voices. On May 16, it produced an ambiguous plan which both the Congress and the League accepted with opposing interpretations, enabling the mission to claim success. This text of the 16th May Declaration said in paragraph 15 that provinces, quote, should be free, unquote, to form groups. In paragraph 16, it said, provinces shall do so. Later, Cripps would candidly tell the House of Commons that the wording was kept, quote, purposely vague, unquote, so as to enable both sides to join the 16th May scheme. The document also said that union and group constitutions could be reconsidered 10 years after being framed, a provision welcomed by the League as a door to secession. In short, while the League pronounced the union in the 16th May scheme to be optional, the Congress claimed that the middle tier of the groups was not essential. On the 24th of May, an aide to the mission and a future British member of parliament, Woodrow Wyatt, advised Jinnah that though Pakistan had not been conceded, he could accept the May 16 scheme as the first step on the road to Pakistan. On the 6th of June, the League formally accepted the 16th May plan while adding that complete sovereign Pakistan remained its unalterable objective and claiming that the foundation of Pakistan was inherent in what it described as the plan's compulsory booking, com in the plan's compulsory grouping and in the implied right of secession. Explanations and assurances of the opposite kind were offered to the Congress, enabling the Congress to accept the 16th May scheme even as it insisted 
that the phrase should be free to ruled out compulsory grouping of provinces in the first place. Accepting these heavily qualified acceptances from the Congress and the League, Wavell installed in the autumn of 1946 an interim government in New Delhi, formerly still called the Viceroy's Executive Council, composed mostly of Congress and League representatives. Nehru, who had succeeded Azad as Congress president, joined as member for external affairs and as vice chairman, as did Patel as home member. Jinnah stayed out, asking Liaquat Ali Khan, who became member for finance, to lead the League group on the council. This interim government of India was thus established in a climate of deep mistrust, with the Congress and the League persisting in their clashing interpretations of the Cabinet Mission's longer-term plan for provinces, groups, and the Union. Troubled by the mission's double-speak, Gandhi wrote to Cripps on the night of 24th June that he proposed to advise the Working Committee not to accept the long-term proposition, adding, I must not act against my instinct. At the Working Committee meeting the next morning, where Gandhi asked his secretary, Pyare Lal, to read out his note to Cripps, members responded with uncomfortable silence. Gandhi said to them, I admit defeat. You are not bound to act upon my advice. I shall now leave with your permission. After a hush, Azad, who was presiding, asked the others, what do you desire? Is there any need to detain Bapu any longer? The silence continued. Gandhi got up and left. Close colleagues and lieutenants of his for 30 years, Nehru, Patel, Azad, Rajgopalachari, Prasad, and company, were more interested in immediate power than in clarity about the future. Even so, Gandhi's response was to back the working committee before the empire, the Muslim League, and the world. To him, the colleagues who had rejected him were India's best. They represented the Congress mind. They were the future. He would support them despite the rebuff they had given him, despite his knowledge that a game of double speak was being played on all sides, and despite his sense to which he gave expression of violence in the air. When the All India Congress Committee met in Bombay on 7th of July to pronounce on the Working Committee's acceptance of the Cabinet Mission Plan, with Nehru taking over from Azad as the head, a recently released Jayaprakash Narayan argued that the plan was a trap. Gandhi admitted that the darkness he had felt about the plan had not lifted. Yet he added, the working committee members are your faithful and tried servants. You should not lightly reject their resolution. By 204 to 51, the All India Congress Committee ratified the decision. The Congress and the League continued to accuse each other of double speak, charging that the Congress had been taken into the interim government despite its dishonest interpretation of the mission's plan. Jinnah called for direct action on 16th August 1946. The result was major violence in Calcutta, where numerous Hindu deaths on the 16th of August were quickly outnumbered by Muslim deaths, followed by killings in eastern Bengal in September, with hundreds of Hindus killed, raped, and forcibly converted. Killings in Bihar in October and November, when 7,000 or more 
Muslims perished, and violence in Garmukteshwar in UP in November when nearly 1,000 Muslims were killed. Three months later, on 20 February 47, came a declaration in London by His Majesty's government that the British would leave India within 16 months, and in any case, not later, later than June 48. Prime Minister Attlee said that the departing empire would hand over, quote, to some form of central government, or in some areas to the existing provincial governments, quote, or in such, a, such other way as may seem most reasonable, unquote. Attlee added that Wavell would be replaced as Viceroy by Lord Louis Mountbatten, a 46-year-old admiral related to King George VI. Informed in advance of the coming announcement, the empire's guardians in India had advised against it. The Punjab governor, Evan Jenkins, predicted that it would cause all parties in Punjab to try to seize as much power as they can, if necessary, by force. Wavell, the viceroy who was being ordered out, thought that the deadline would drain the morale of British officers and soldiers in India, an opinion shared by General Okinlek, the commander-in-chief. However, the empire in retreat ignored the advice of colony-based officers. In Punjab, where the existing provincial government was in the hands of the unionist Khizr Hayat and Khizr Hayat's Hindu and Sikh allies, the thought of all of Punjab going under that government triggered an immediate agitation by the province's majority Muslims. Women took to the streets, students blocked trains, kinsmen deserted Khizr. Caving, he resigned on the night of March 3rd and the Muslim League tried to form a successor government. This did not happen, and governor's rule was imposed instead, but violence erupted. Between the 5th of March and the 8th of March 47, 2,000 or more Sikhs and Hindus were killed in and around the cities of Rawalpindi, Atak, and Multan in West Punjab. On the 8th of March, pressed by the Sikh and Hindu leaders of Punjab and shaken by the violence, the Congress Working Committee, meeting in New Delhi, asked for a division of Punjab into two provinces so that the predominantly Muslim part may be separated from the predominantly non-Muslim part. Cool. With this resolution, the Congress was conceding Pakistan while also insisting that East Punjab would stay out of it. Soon, a division of Bengal was also demanded. When the League asked for a division of India, the Congress had said, said no. Now the Cong now the Congress was asking for partition of Punjab and Bengal, in effect also of India, with Jinnah continuing to hold that all of Bengal and Punjab belonged to Pakistan. When the Congress resolution was passed, Gandhi was in distant Bihar, striving to restore peace there, as he had earlier striven in Bengal. Learning of the resolution from newspapers, he sent questioning letters to Nehru and Patel. He was not giving up. Reflecting on Punjab's armed bands that were now active, on Jinnah's, on Jinnah's opposition to the division of Punjab and Bengal, and on the Congress's dislike of India's division, Gandhi felt that if the Congress accepted a Jinnah-led ministry in New Delhi to replace the feuding and non-functional interim government, polarization could be reversed and peace and unity preserved. Traveling to Delhi, Gandhi presented his proposal to Congress leaders and to the newly arrived Viceroy, Lord Mountbatten, in the first days of April. Let Jinnah, Gandhi told the Viceroy, head an interim government of his choice, 
comprising league members alone or a broader one. Secondly, unless an impartial empire, like the Viceroy, were to rule that a league measure was against the national interest, the Congress, which had, which had a majority in the Central Assembly, would back the league government. Thirdly, Punjab's private bands should be disbanded. Finally, if Jinnah and the League were not willing under these terms to form a cohesive government, Nehru and the Congress should be given the same opportunity. Gandhi thought that the League leader who had dismissed Gandhi's separation scheme in 1944 would be open to his latest proposal. However, the young admiral taking over in New Delhi had not only de determined that partition was the solution, the conclusion that Nehru and Patel too had reached, Mountbatten had prepared a precise plan for partition. Perturbed, therefore, by Gandhi's proposal, Mountbatten was shaken when Azad told him on the 2nd of April that Gandhi's plan was perfectly feasible of being carried out. As the Viceroy recorded in his journal, I told Azad straight away of Gandhi's plan, of which he already knew from Gandhi that morning. He staggered me by saying, that in his opinion, it was perfectly feasible of being carried out, since Gandhi could unquestionably influence the whole of Congress to accept it and work it loyally. He further thought that there was a chance that I might get Jinnah to accept it, and he thought that such a plan would be the quickest way to stop bloodshed. Would Jinnah agree to the proposal? Though never putting it to the league leader, Mountbatten indirectly probed Jinnah on the 9th of April by saying not very honestly, that it was a daydream of mine, said Mountbatten, to be able to put the central government under the prime ministership of Mr. Jinnah himself. Thereafter, according to the Viceroy, Jinnah once more appealed against a moth-eaten Pakistan. However, Mountbatten's record continues, quote, some 35 minutes later, Mr. Jinnah, who had not referred previously to my personal remark about him, suddenly made a reference out of the blue to the fact that I had wanted him to be the prime minister. There is no doubt, Mountbatten wrote, that it had greatly tickled his vanity and that he had kept turning over the proposition in his mind, continues Mountbatten in his journal. Mr. Gandhi's famous scheme may yet go through on the pure vanity of Mr. Jinnah, unquote. Though promising Gandhi that he would examine the scheme and privately telling his staff that it would not be very easy for Mr. Jinnah to refuse Mr. Gandhi's offer, and adding that basically Mr. Gandhi's, Mr. Gandhi's objective was to retain the unity of India, and basically he was right in this, unquote, Mountbatten was in fact opposed to the scheme. Thanks to skillful work put in by his staff, by his associates, and himself, the Viceroy's anxiety was removed. To strengthen the opposition of Nehru and Patel to Gandhi's plan, the Viceroy, supported by Jawaharlal's friend Krishna Menon, who had befriended Mountbatten in London, worked on Nehru, while V.P. Menon, a talented member of the Viceroy's staff who enjoyed a close relationship with Patel, liaised with Patel. V.P. Menon also produced, on the 5th of April, a detailed note for the Viceroy entitled, Tactics to be Adopted with Gandhi as Regards His Queen, unquote. The upshot was that Gandhi's Congress colleagues firmly rejected his proposal, which therefore was never put to Jinnah. On April 11, in a letter to Mountbatten, Gandhi admitted defeat. Quote, I had several short talks with Pandit Nehru and an hour's talk with him alone, and then with several members of the working committee last night. 
about the formula I had sketched before you and which I had filled in for them with all the implications. I'm sorry to say that I failed to carry any of them with the exception of Ghaffar Khan. I could not convince them of the correctness of my plan, nor could they dislodge me from my position, although I had not closed my mind. Thus, Gandhi continued, I have to ask you to omit me from further consultations. A diary entry by Rajagopalachari, member, member of the interim government, a participant in the deliberations to which Gandhi referred, states that Gandhi's ill-conceived plan of solving the present difficulties was objected to by everybody and scotched, unquote. Jinnah scholars in Pakistan have on the whole doubted that he would have agreed to Gandhi's proposal. However, Stanley Walpert, Jinnah's American biographer, thought that Gandhi's plan might just have worked. Surely, Wolpert wrote, this was a King Solomon solution. After admitting defeat, Gandhi left Delhi for Bihar. In the middle of June, when the All India Congress Committee met to ratify the partition to which Nehru, Patel, and company had agreed, Gandhi told the AICC that he was acquiescing in it. On the 14th of August in Karachi, Jinnah was sworn in as Governor General of Pakistan without East Punjab, without West Bengal, without Assam, and with Liaquat Ali as Prime Minister. In New Delhi the next day, Jawaharlal Nehru and Vallabhai Patel took over the government of a truncated but independent India as Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister, respectively, with Mountbatten continuing as Governor General. Earlier that morning, 15 August 1947, Gandhi had opened his eyes in a decaying Muslim-owned house in Beliaghata, a depressed Hindu-majority locality in Calcutta, where once more Gandhi strove to bring peace, for violence had broken out there. The story of Gandhi's final face, his intervention in Calcutta, his response to the upheaval and carnage in Punjab and Delhi, and the course on which he was able to place independent India before his assassination in January 48, will only be told in Lecture 7. The next lecture, Lecture 5, will be about Gandhi and the question of caste and inequality. Thank you.